Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. job and I texted him this week I said in order to introduce you this week I need your Spotify wrapped um, and um, he, said it, he said he didn't have it um, but he had Amazon and he sent me um, basically it was Bethel and Baby Shark and so um, that's what happens when you have kids and they, they take over your Spotify um, or Apple Music whatever you have but um, I'm really grateful for my friend uh, Nick to be here today and to talk about peace being greater than anxiety so can you guys welcome him? Good morning. Uh, Russell did leave off Peppa Pig. Oh, sorry. We need to shout out Peppa. It's a British accent (laughs) that we like. Um, If you haven't noticed, I'm not from America. Uh, My family and I, we moved to New York six years ago. And as Russell said, met him through Incubator. And we're now into a new season of our lives, uh, going down to, to Charleston. In South Carolina, so I was thinking this week I need to buy a new winter jacket because mine's terrible. And I was like, no, I don't. I'm never going to need a winter jacket again. So, um, listen, it's great to be here. Just before I get started, any soccer fans here? So now that the US are out, are you all going to be honorary English fans? No? Well, we're going to. We're gonna we're gonna pray quickly for this morning, and I'm gonna pray for England to win, and you're all gonna say amen because you're good Christians. So, uh, why don't you just place your hand on your heart for me? <clears throat> yeah, Holy Spirit, thank you for being here. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for being such a kind, amazing God. And I just pray, Lord, that today is significant for all of us. Not because of my words or clever planning or anything like that, but because Holy Spirit, you come and meet us. I just pray that all of us would leave here today different because of your hand on our lives. Lord, we pray that you're glorified and honoured through it all. And we do pray, Jesus, for England to beat Senegal and to go on and win the World Cup. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Great. Fantastic. So... We're, uh, Russell said to me when, when he invited me, he said, the best thing you can offer our church is your vulnerability. So I'm going to be really vulnerable with you today, and I hope that's okay, because I haven't prepared anything else. So I'm just going to uh, tell you a bit about me, and I wanted to start by telling you um, how when I was 29, I was diagnosed with clinical depression. Um, so I'm 38, so it's nine years ago. And um, it's probably the second time in my life that I was depressed or had gone through depression. When I was 18, my dad died. He had pancreatic cancer. Nine months from diagnosis to death, very, very quick. As a sheltered uh, 18-year-old, shook me to the core. Absolutely went through a season of depression, but I just didn't have the vocabulary at that time to call it that. And I guess that's 20 years ago. And so the world wasn't kind of au fait with using those sorts of phrases and stuff, but definitely a season of depression when I was 18, suicidal, all sorts of stuff going on with me. And then when I was 29, I remember sitting in a a doctor's surgery, weeping, 
before this GP, this doctor, and he said, I think you're depressed. And I said, yeah, me too. And at the time, there was a, a huge amount of things going on for me. So we had just had our second child, uh, Kezia, uh, who's now nine. We had a boy who was 18 months, and our, the birth of, of Kezia was really traumatic. It was, um, it was not a fun time. My wife was gravely ill. She had a C-section, she hemorrhaged. She was like, you know, touch and go for a while, blood transfusion, all sorts of stuff. It was a terrible time. Uh, as a result of that, she ended up in postpartum depression. And so here I am, this 29-year-old guy with two kids under two, my wife's depressed. Alongside that, I was also dealing with an incredibly stressful work situation. I was working for a church in the UK, but we were launching a, a youth project at the time. Uh, we were linking up with the, the local council, the mayor. We had to raise uh, $250,000 to refurb this place, and I'm the, the point guy on it. On top of that, you, you could say a lot of my, the, the demons from my past were kind of catching up with me. Uh, I began to process my dad's death, which I never really done. Um, and I also was, was working through some abuse that I suffered as a kid. And I remember in my mid-twenties, I just suddenly had this recollection, recollect this memory of some abuse that happened to me. And so all of this is kind of happening at the same time. I told you I'd be vulnerable, didn't I? All of these things was kind of happening, was going on, and it was just like the weight of the world was on my shoulders. And when my wife, kind of six months after, um, after Kezia was born, she kind of came out of her own season of depression through, through counseling and help and support. And as she came out and started to take some of the load off me, I crashed. I was like a proper crash and burn. And that's when I found myself in the doctor's surgery, weeping in front of this middle-aged man. And um, for me, depression was like an incredibly tough storm. I don't know if any of you have been through depression, but for me, whenever I think back to that season, it, it's, like, it's like brain fog. Just, I just couldn't see any further than the step in front of me. It was like you're, you're stuck in this woods. You can't see through. You don't, don't know what the next step looks like. It was a really tough time. And in fact, I remember on my 30th birthday, right? So a, a, a great thing to celebrate, to making it to 30. And Amy, my wife, had organised this amazing party for me. Uh, loads of friends came out. I was surprised by how many people wanted to celebrate me. Gift table was full, the grill was cooking, kids were running around, the sun was shining. It was a beautiful moment. And I, I vividly remember being in that room, in my house, sun shining, all my friends there, anything you would, you know, it's the kind of party you, you, everyone would love. And I just remember being there thinking, I, I, I don't want to be here. I want all of these people to go home. And I remember actually two or three times just having to escape, go to my bedroom, lie on my bed, stare at the ceiling and just take some time out. That's what depression was like for me. It, was, uh, it took seasons where you, you, you were meant to be celebrating and turned them into just moments of wanting to isolate and get away. It was a really tough storm for me. I, I wonder if this morning any of you can relate. I wonder if any of you have ever been through something uh, similar. Maybe, maybe it's depression for some of you. Maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's OCD, or maybe it's stress, or maybe just work is rough, trying to pay the rent in a very expensive city. You know, the late, great Robin Williams uh, once said these words, he says, all it takes 
is a beautiful smile to hide an injured soul. And then they will never notice how broken you really are. I wonder how many of you are hiding behind a beautiful smile today. There's some very beautiful smiles here. How many, how many of you are hiding behind a beautiful smile? How many of you have hidden your broken soul? In, in my experience, church is so often the easiest place to turn up. Put on a fake smile. Have a, have a quick answer to how are you doing. Yeah, I'm fine, thanks. It's a very British thing. Just, yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm fine, thank you. Even for me right now, I'm in a season where we're transitioning out of the city. There's loads, loads that's happened in the last six months. I'm back in counselling, trying to work on some stuff because I just recognise these sorts of things coming back and creeping up on me. And I've been talking to my counsellor for about, uh, I don't know, five, six weeks now. One of the things I'm realising and noticing is that the macro of my life, the big picture of my life, significantly impacts the micro. The, the big story, the stuff I've been through, my traumas, my experiences, my upbringing, all of that feeds into my day-to-day. Feeds into how I respond to people, how I, uh, how I present, all those types of things, my fears, my, all those types of things. The big picture of our lives impacts the day-to-day, right? And what I see in our society is that when there's a failure to recognise and deal with the macro, we end up with a lot of issues in the micro. Right? We were talking about this before, healthy people and unhealthy people, weren't we, Russell? And just, that's where we're at as a society, isn't it? We often, so often fail to deal with the macro and the micro is impacted. And just consider some of these stats, I think they're going to come up. I I think, there we go, right. One in five people suffer from some form of mental health. One in five, that's, that's huge. Anxiety orders, uh, disorders I should say are the most common form of mental health in the United States. 50% of people who report to having mental health issues do not receive treatment. That's 50% of people who report it. How many people don't report it and still don't get treatment? Uh, We also see, and this one absolutely terrifies me, suicide is the second leading cause of death for those aged 10 to 34. Isn't that frightening? That's the world that my kids are growing up. My son is 11 now. So he's in that bracket. That is terrifying. And it suggested that the pandemic saw a doubling of depression and and anxiety. It's no exaggeration, right, for me to stand here today sharing my story and say to you that you fall into one of these three, three categories. Either you're struggling with mental health today, anxiety, OCD, depression, whatever it might be. That, that's one category. The second category is that you know someone who is family member, friend, work colleague, or the final one is that your life has in some way been affected by it. Maybe it's the way someone's treated you who's going through mental health issues. And you know what, when I read the scriptures, I, I actually see a lot of mental health in, in the pages of, of the Bible. Think about uh, the Psalms or the Book of Lamentations. Psalms, Psalm 36 is just one example I found. This is, the writer says, I'm troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all day long. I groan because of the turmoil in my heart. Or Lamentations 2 where Jeremiah confesses, I've cried until the tears no longer come. My heart is broken. Or consider Elijah in 1 Kings 19 where he says, I've had enough, Lord. 
know what happened to my voice there, but he'd had enough. <laughs> Take my life, he said. That sounds like someone who's depressed. Or Job, I find so much solace through the book of Job. I've read, read it several times and I love it. And there's a moment in, in the book of Job where his estate has been burnt to the ground. He's lost family members. And the Bible just says he sat in the ashes of the fire, cutting himself. Sounds like self-harm to me. Sounds like someone who's depressed and going through a dark night of the soul. What about Jesus? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Whilst it might be too far to say he was depressed, it's not too far to say that he was in the midst of his own dark night of the soul. In fact, it says, doesn't it, in, in the Gospel accounts that he was sweating drops of blood. Medically, we know that that's a sign of extreme physical stress now. He was going through it, wasn't he? He experienced some of the things that people in America are experiencing. And so it's with this lens, with this recognizing this reality that many of us will and do struggle with our mental health, with depression, with anxiety, that I wanted to look at John 6 this morning. And I just want to pick out a few things in there, just highlight a couple of high-level points from it. And because in, in these verses that we read, the disciples are in the midst of their own physical storm, aren't they? They're going through it. And there are three things that I just wanted to draw out. The first is, this was an intense storm, right? These disciples uh, were seasoned fishermen. They grew up on the seas. They would have kind of rid out these types of storms all the time. But all commentators seem to agree that this was a life-threatening situation for them. It's easy just to read the pages of the Bible and say, oh, they went through a bit of a storm. They were rowing for a few hours. No, the commentators say this was a life-threatening situation for them. And, and for the author, John, who was in the boat, he, he writes in such a way that says, this wasn't just some thing you brush off or you just need a, a, you know, your, your mat for or your umbrella. This, it, 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 other translations, maybe it's not, it says this, the sea was agitated. Matthew says that his disciples have been rowing for several hours and that the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed by the waves. For the wind was contrary to them. I love that word. It sounds very British, doesn't it? That the wind was contrary to them. I don't know why I have to put on a British accent. I do that often when I'm pretending to be British. But anyway, whatever. You know, when we're in the middle of a storm, it's, it's never fun. Whether it's anxiety, whether it's depression, whether it's a relational challenge, whether it's work, whatever it is, it's never fun, is it? And, and the disciples, it was said of them, they were tired, stressed, and frightened. And I, I'm, I'm honing in on this because I just want to make this point, right? It's important to dwell on the fact that as Christians, we aren't immune to the storms of life. We're not immune to the storms of life. What that means is that if we do find ourselves in a storm, debt, stress, depression, whatever it might be, it's not a sign that God is not with you. It's not a sign that his hand has been removed from you or that his favor is no longer on you or that he doesn't love you anymore. We're not immune to the storms of life as believers. The second thing I wanted to highlight was that we actually seem to see that Jesus initiated this situation. In the parallel version of Matthew 14, it says this, immediately, they're just thousands right you remember that story 
And then it says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. Just let that sink in. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. I, I can imagine the disciples thinking, we've seen the weather forecast, Jesus. CNN says it's not good. There's a hurricane coming. And he's, says he made them get into the boat. The, the words for he made them in the Greek is actually a very strong use of a phrase where it, it could even mean compelled, forced, or threatened. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that Jesus is like me when I talk to my kids and, I, and he's threatening the disciples, you get in that boat or else, son. You're going to miss out on screen time. No more Peppa Pig. But the point stands, right? Jesus compelled the disciples. No, no, you will get into that boat. And he, he sent them into a storm that would see them scared, struggling and alone. Here's the significance, right? That means the disciples found themselves in the midst of the storm simply by being obedient to Jesus. Let that sink in. They found themselves in the midst of, of a storm simply by being obedient to Jesus. That does not seem fair, does it? Mike Pilavachi is a pastor out in the UK. He says this, sometimes Jesus deliberately sends us into a storm because in the middle of the storm, he knows it's where we would have the greatest encounter and intimacy with him. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that every storm you face in life is God initiated, right? Ephesians 2 talks about how actually sometimes storms come because spiritual warfare, the devil. Sometimes it's because of just the fallen world we live in. And other times it's because of our stupid choices. But this morning I want to recognise that sometimes God needs to take us through a storm in order to bring us into something new. That was my story with depression. I absolutely recognised that I needed to go through that season. I, I needed God to take me to a season or, or through depression where I would, I would come through that into a, a more healthy place in my emotions. I needed to go through the valley in order to come to the mountaintop. So firstly, we see believers, we're not immune to the storms of life. Secondly, we see sometimes Jesus sends us into the storm. And the final thing I wanted to highlight is that Jesus' presence didn't actually end the storm. Isn't that fascinating? I don't know if you notice that, but Jesus, even when he arrived at where the boat was, doesn't say the storm ended then. The storm was still raging. He's just doing his thing, walking on the water. In fact, Mark says Jesus was going to walk past the boat. You read that in Mark? This account, he says he, he, he walked up and he was going to walk past them. So it's almost like he's just checking how they're doing. The storm's still raging. The storm's still going. I find that fascinating. Jesus sent his disciples into the middle of a life-threatening storm. And he's planning on walking past the boat. Come on, Jesus. Do you not love me? Do you not care for me? Yeah, I've got uh, my son. He's 11. Joash. Plays soccer. Pretty good level. He's played at the Red Bulls and stuff like that. And I used, I used to be his coach. I coached him for four years. That's why he's so good. And, <laughs> and um, this year, he's at a stage where I thought, he needs a different coach now. He needs a different voice. And so I stepped off. And so now I'm the dad. The, I'm the dad, the dad coach on the sideline watching my son. And it is hard. 
And it's hard because I want him to be the best version of him that he can be. He loves the game and I want to help him and I want him to do really, really well. So there's times in a game where I'm, I'm I, I, in my mind, I'm saying, check your shoulder, Joe, receiving your back foot, open up, look up, switch to play. And there's stuff that's going through my head and I'm wanting to tell him, tell him, wanting to help him. I want to coach him all the time. But as a coach and as a dad, I recognize that if I'm doing that, if I'm on the sidelines constantly telling him what to do and how to deal with the situation, I'm actually stealing learning moments from him. I'm taking away growth opportunities from him. And so actually I'm not being very loving. I'm not being very kind to him because what happens when I'm not there? How does he cope with that situation when I'm not there? He has to learn, he has to go through it. He's got to figure out how to read the game. He's got to figure out how to make the best decisions. And you know, when I read these verses this month, I was reminded of that and I thought, I wonder if that's how Jesus felt. He's kind of walking on the water. He sent the disciples into the storm and he's thinking, how are they getting on? I imagine for Jesus in that moment, it might have been quite difficult for him to see the people he loved the most struggling, straining, scared, frightened. That's why he comes and says, don't be afraid, it's okay. I imagine it would have been quite uncomfortable for him trying to figure out the balance of when to step in and when to not. So what do we learn from this story? Well, three things I wanted to highlight, big picture things. Is first is believers, we're not immune to the worst kinds of storms that life can throw us. Secondly, sometimes Jesus actually initiates those circumstances for us. Thank you, God. And finally, we learn that actually God, we can be in the presence of God and in the presence of a major storm all at once. So the question becomes, what do we do about it? How do we respond as believers when we find ourselves in these incredibly difficult moments. Now, I don't know about you, but there's two ways I normally respond when a storm comes. I'm proud as a pastor to share these with you. The first thing I do is I strive and I try and fix it. So if, if the storm is debt, I'm like, right, how can I get another job? How can I earn more money? What can I do? If it's anxiety, right, I need to declare, preach to myself. Whatever it might be, I just want to do more. I want to work harder. I want to do all I can to help us uh, me and my family get out of this storm. That's what the disciples were doing, wasn't it? Straining at the oars, trying to get, come on guys, we can do it. We can beat Mother Nature here. Let's do it, guys, come on. We're God's chosen. Second thing I do is I give up. Anyone else? I, give, I just like, I've tried everything and I'm done. It's like one extreme to the next, right? stay in bed, I stop asking for help, I isolate, I stop being disciplined in my relationship with God, I eat more junk and I drink more beer. That's me. I wallow. Do you know what? I'm a professional wallower. I am so good at self-wallowing. You should ask my wife. And, uh, and what I do is I just let the storm kind of take me. Just fine, this is, I can't change this guy, I'm just going to let it happen. How do you respond? When you're sat in that doctor's surgery and he says, I think you're clinically depressed, how do you respond? When you realize you've got anxiety, when you look at your finances, how do you respond? Do you give up, do you strive, or do you do something else? You know, there's, there is obviously a third way. There is a better way, all right? We're getting there, we're getting to the good stuff. And it's right here in these verses. So verse 19, it says this, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. They were frightened. 
And he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And then verse 21, it says this, then they were willing to take him into the boat. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. You notice that 10 simple words totally changed the situation. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. You know, Matthew's account, he ends by saying this, then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. So we see these disciples going from being this terrified, exhausted, hopeless group into suddenly being safe from the storm and full of worship, having had this incredible encounter and revelation of Jesus. Their posture towards Jesus changed. And it wasn't their hard work. It wasn't them just giving up and wallowing. It wasn't some clever strategy. All that changed, all that changed was the disciples were willing to invite Jesus into the boat. And the word willing is an active verb, right? So it's not just that Jesus said, I'm coming on now, boys. It was a case of they had to invite him on. He's not forcing his way into your life. And why is it that when Jesus steps on the boat, the calm storms, the storm calms, sorry? Well, John Bevere says this, God never leads us into a storm that he does not give us the power to overcome. God will never lead you into a storm that he does not also give you the power to overcome. You know, this might sound Christianese, right? Just let Jesus in. But sometimes the simplest things are the most profound. Christianity is not hard. It's not complicated. And the reason that inviting Jesus in is so profound is because his power isn't just the power to heal or isn't just the power to provide or to create. He also gives us the power of peace. John 16, verse 33. Russell quoted it last week. He says this, I've said these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Ephesians 2 says, he himself is our peace. Church, the antidote for anxiety, the antidote for depression, the antidote to the storms of this life isn't striving, isn't strategizing, isn't wallowing. The antidote is actually not something we can find from within. The antidote is Jesus himself because he is peace personified. C.S. Lewis once said, life with God is not the absence of or immunity from difficulties, but it's knowing his calming presence in the midst of them. And this is true because that's what the gospel is. Isaiah 53 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And you know what that word healed is? It's sozo. And what it means is a complete healing. It's not just physically I'm healed. It's not just spiritually, it's emotionally, it's mentally. It makes us whole. That's what Jesus did on the cross for us. The gospel is that in all situations and circumstances, whether you've given up, whether you're here this morning, you've given up, or whether you're here this morning and you're striving, the gospel is Revelation 3, which says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. 
That's written to believers, yeah? It's not written to non-Christians. It's written to us as believers. Or to put Revelation 3 in a different way, in the middle of the storm, Jesus is there. If anyone's willing to let him in their boat, he will come in and be with us, even in the midst of the storm. So as we come into land, let me just recap, right? As believers, John 16, 33, we're not immune to the storms of life. Sometimes God even sends us into them. But the best thing we can do in the midst of the storm, the best way for us to cope with the tribulations of life is to pause. Again, as Russell was saying last week, is to pause, to reflect and to invite Jesus into the boat. And as we do, sometimes the storm will miraculously end. Sometimes it will. Sometimes it won't. And we have to wait and be patient. That's what Advent is all about, as you were talking about last week. But as we wait for the storms to calm, we'll be doing it with peace personified next to us. We'll be doing it with Jesus who will be calming our souls. So to finish with, I want to ask you a question. As a pastor, I don't give application anymore. If you go to a preaching castle, they always say, give application. For me, I recognise that in this room, there's going to be so many different ways you apply a message like this. And so I just want to ask you a question. And the question I want to ask you is this, what can you actively do to invite Jesus into your boat? Don't be passive. What can you actively do to invite Jesus into your boat? How can we be a people who seek peace to overcome our anxiety? This Christmas season, how can you begin to practice good habits that help you to overcome on a weekly basis, on a daily basis? What does it look like for you? A morning run, meditation, some time without your phone, daily declarations. What does it look like for you? What can you do this Advent season to actively invite Jesus into your boat? We're going to finish, Russell, by taking communion. Um, I know that this is a practice you do regularly here, but you know what? As I was preparing, I just thought this was such an apt way to end because... The act of communion is in its very nature inviting Jesus into our boat. It is saying, it's a holy act of surrender, saying, God, I can't fix this right now. I can't calm this storm. I need you. And not just any help, but the help of one who's been into the depths of the sea, who's been into the depths of hell, walked through the darkest night of the soul, and yet beaten a storm so that we can do it too.